Good morning, everybody. It's been a big weekend. Uh, my daughter was crowned homecoming queen at her high school on Friday. Yeah. And I'm the father of the queen, which makes me broke. That's right. Um, why someone needs uh, two dresses and six pairs of shoes for one homecoming weekend, I do not fully understand. The, uh, the homecoming king crowned that night is also a part of Ward Church, uh, George Merritt. So congratulations, Gracie and George, and long live the king and queen. Now, it turns out when you're uh, named king or queen from your homecoming court, um, it doesn't actually come with any real power. Um, great affirmation of your friends, but no lasting uh, power of any kind. And today's sermon is about power. I want to welcome those of you joining us from the Farmington Hills campus this morning, and I'm so grateful for the technology that allows our two campuses to join together every Sunday for the teaching time. Again, we are one church in two locations. And as you have heard, we're at a turning point in the book of Acts of our study of that New Testament book. Let me tell you about where we're going. The book of Acts opens with the words of Jesus. Jesus said, this is the very first chapter, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And a lot of you remember that became an outline for the entire book of Acts. Uh, sure enough, we see uh, in chapters 1 through 7 all about the beginnings of the church in the city of Jerusalem. We hear about the, the foundations and the values and the first movements of this fledgling, fragile movement in chapters 1 and 7 in one city among one ethnicity. And then we move to chapters 8 through 12 and we see the church move out to the region of Judea and then to the neighboring area of Samaria. Samaria was very close by. In some ways, it was culturally very similar to the Jews, but in other ways, it was very different than the Jews. I think about for us today, our Samaria might be, might be like Detroit or Dearborn, very nearby, very similar culturally, American, Midwest, Michigan, but in other ways, different culturally. Uh, they spread to Samaria, and then, after chapter 12, it turns, and the church goes global. Every tribe, every tongue, to the entire known earth. And, uh, and today, we're in chapter 12, so we're in the last chapter of the middle section of the book of Acts, and next week, we move to the final segment of the book of Acts. And next Sunday, Dr. Joseph D'Souza from India will be our guest. Dr. D'Souza is the premier global expert on the plight of the Dalit people of India. And really, whenever uh, BBC, uh, CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times want to talk to an expert on what's going on there, Joseph D'Souza is the guy they call. Uh, he's kind of a, a big deal, and he's going to be here next week. And he is our long-term partner in the nation of India. And what we're going to talk about today in chapter 12 is going to set us up really well for this third and final installment of the book of Acts that we're going to start next week. We're going to see there are two kingdoms at play Two distinct kingdoms at play side by side in the book of Acts. And each one has its own system of power. And as we work through chapter 12 today, I want you to notice how power works. How power works in each of these distinct kingdoms. 
Today we're in chapter 12, and you heard it read. It started this way. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now this King Herod is not the King Herod of Christmas. We see that name and we think about the guy who had all the babies killed to try to stop the prophecy of the new coming Messiah, the new coming king. This is not that King Herod. This is that King Herod's grandson, King Agrippa I. There's also another Herod in the Bible who will play a role at the trial of Jesus uh, toward the end of the Gospels. So it's kind of confusing because there are different people named Herod and they're all part of one awful family. King Herod Agrippa I, uh, like his grandfather before him, liked to put the words the great after his name. Herod the Great. This family has ego issues, and they're power-hungry, and their power comes from the emperor of Rome, who has set them up as kind of puppet kings over the Jewish uh, providences. Now, uh, the Jewish people hated the Herod family, but this new younger Herod is trying to change that, and he's even starting to follow some of the Jewish customs, not because he believes in them but because he's trying to endear himself to his subjects. Everything was political for the Herods. He had James, one of the apostles, put to death by beheading, and this really pleased his subjects, who had no love for this uh, sect of Judaism that honored Jesus as the Messiah. They loved it so much, he decided to do it again, and he had the apostle Peter taken into custody with the intent of executing him. Paul was guarded, it says, by four squads of four soldiers, probably on a rotating basis. Two soldiers, one chained on each side of Peter, and two soldiers at the entryway. Herod wanted to make sure that this apostle did not escape before his execution. Now, it's interesting uh, in the story that, that God rescued Peter, but not James. In the book of Acts, we see God's miraculous intervention right alongside of God's non-intervention. There are stories of God dramatically intervening in really miraculous ways, and there are other stories of God kind of holding back and letting things run their course, and we're never told why. Jesus does give a prophetic hint in Mark chapter 10 that James will die a martyr's death. And maybe the work of James was finished on this earth. But at any rate, this is a real turning point for the early church. People might have wondered, do the apostles have some kind of special divine protection because of their elite status? Stephen had been martyred earlier, but now it's an apostle. Would an apostle have some kind of protection? And we see that it is not so. Jesus promises no special protection even for his closest followers. In fact, he warns them all to get ready for persecution. And so today's story from Acts chapter 12, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he, the angel, struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, the angel said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists, right? Uh, so the, um, imagine that you're Peter 
and you're in prison, and you're waiting to die, and you're sound asleep, and all of a sudden some angel whacks you on the side. You've heard of touched by an angel. Peter was whacked by an angel. It was some high testosterone cherub that showed up that night. Bam! Get up! And the story uh, goes on. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him, the angel, out of the, out of the prison. But Peter had no idea that, that what, what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. In other words, even Peter didn't believe that God's power was really at work. Peter, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection who was there on the day of Pentecost, didn't believe that God would or could maybe actually do such a thing. He thinks that he's dreaming. Let's go on. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. This is the world's first automatic gate. (laughs) Story goes on. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. And you're wondering why, uh, why Mary is also called Mark. No, John is called, also called Mark. Where many people had gathered in the house and they were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Now, Peter's outside, um, right? There's an APP out for him. You know, there's there's guards combing the streets looking for him. He knows he's got to get off the street and into hiding. And so he goes to the house where he knows his friends have gathered, and he knocks on the door. Uh, Who is it? It's Peter. Now, at that point, we expect in the story Rhoda to open the door and pull Peter into safety, but she does not do that. She's so overwhelmed, she leaves Peter outside and goes and tells the apostles uh, that Peter is at the door. And, um, and here's, how, here's how they respond. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said it must be his angel. They're saying, look, look, uh, uh, don't bother us, but, but, but Peter's at the door. Don't be ridiculous. Peter can't be at the door. Peter's in prison. That's kind of the whole point of this meeting. We are praying for God to do something about the fact that Peter is in prison. And meanwhile, Peter is outside, and I wonder what he's thinking. It, it's a remarkably well-told story, because here's what it says. Peter, but Peter kept on knocking. <laughs> he's, just, he's just outside. Okay, guys, uh, let me in. Peter's outside knocking. What's going on in there? And when they opened the door and saw Peter, they were astonished. They are praying that God will get Peter out of prison. God gets Peter out of prison, and they are astonished. We didn't think that would actually work. We didn't see that coming. They were surprised. Now, I have the same problem in my life. I operate mostly entirely in my own power. Sometimes I ask God for power, but then I continue to operate in my own. And this is embarrassing to me because I've walked with Jesus for a long time. When I go to God, I get strength. I may not always get a dramatic answer like this one, 
But when I go to God, I do get strength, I get wisdom, I get creativity, I get comfort. But more often than not, I forget to go to God at all. I forget to ask God for help. Well, at least for today, I want to make sure that we don't forget. And we're going to stop right here for a short time of prayer. And we are going to do what the early church did. As God's gathered people, we are going to earnestly seek the power of God. Now, I want to be clear that this prayer that we're about to pray is not the closing prayer. If you're a regular part of church, you know that prayer is the universal signal that the sermon is wrapping up and it's time for the musicians to come back onto the platform. This is not that prayer. That prayer is coming later. This is the rare mid-sermon prayer. And I'd like to invite you right now to assume a posture of prayer and to bow, if you would, here and in Farmington Hills and online. And for a moment right now, ask God to shed his power, to bring his power at that place in your life where you need it most right now. Right now, in the quietness of your heart, ask God to bring God's power into that area of your life where you need it most. Maybe you're in kind of a prison today. Maybe it's a prison of regret or of fear or temptation or guilt and you need to be set free. Maybe it's a parenting challenge or a relational difficulty. Maybe it's a financial burden. Maybe you've got a friend who really needs God's intervention. For the next few minutes, we're going to do what the church did and we are going to earnestly seek God's power through prayer. Go ahead and pray. Take a moment right now where you are to pray for God's power for our world. Go ahead and pray bold prayers that God would end violence and hatred. Pray especially for those communities reeling from mass shootings and murders and war. Pray for God's power to be at work among widows and orphans. Pray for the rulers of nations and of regions and of cities. Let us earnestly seek God's power. O God of grace and kindness, we pray earnestly as your church for your power. For ourselves, for our loved ones, for our church, and for our world. Help us to receive and to apply your power. Fill us with expectation and hope. And to you be the glory, honor, and praise. This we pray in the powerful name of our risen, resurrected Savior Jesus.
And the church agreed and said, Amen. Amen. The early church sought and relied on the power of God. I want to look at the remaining paragraphs of chapter 12 because what I find here is, can be really encouraging. Chapter 12 continues beyond what was read earlier. Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, Sidon that they now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, King Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Now, the ancient historian Josephus gives us a few more details about the speech that Herod gave on this day. Josephus um, says that Herod wore a garment wholly made of silver. Herod was looking good on this day. The sun reflected off the silver, Josephus says, and, quote, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. And even chapter 12 says this, the people shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. That must have been quite a speech that Herod gave that day. I've given many speeches and never once has anybody said, that speech was so great, he must be more than a man. His head is resplendent with reflection uh, for us. See, people started to treat Caesar as a god. In that day, Caesar was treated like a god. And now they're starting to do the same thing with Herod. Has anybody ever done that for you? You ever walk into your workplace and people go, oh, he's going to... What would that do to Herod's head, this egomaniac, power-hungry person, to be treated as a god? And here's the surprising twist in the story, verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. And thus ends the reign of King Herod Agrippa I. Again, historian Josephus gives a few more details. He says that Herod was ripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere all at once that was intense from the start. Josephus records, exhausted after five days straight by pain in the abdomen, he departed this life in the 54th year of life and the seventh of his reign. Luke's reference to worms suggests uh, an infection by intestinal roundworms. These roundworms can grow between 12 and 16 inches. They feed off the nutrients in the bowels. Bunches of roundworms can block the intestines, causing severe pain and even death. You ready for lunch? <laughs> Luke records this. He sees Herod's death as punishment as judgment of God on Herod. Herod refused to honor God and sought to be honored as God. And there's great irony in this story. From the world's perspective, Herod is all-powerful and Peter is powerless. Herod is free and Peter is in prison. Herod has the majority, Peter the minority, but there is another kingdom at work. Ultimately, in this story, who displays the real power of God? It's Peter. 
And really, who's the one that's really captive and who's the one that's really free? And when has God ever been concerned about majority opinion? This is an exercise in contrast. Herod's power comes from the emperor and his access through politics. Peter's power comes from God and is accessed through prayer. Herod is legally free, but he's imprisoned by greed and fear. Peter is in jail, but he knows true freedom. Herod the Great, Peter the Grateful. Peter bursts forth with purpose and freedom and power, and Herod was eaten by worms. There are two kingdoms each with a different kind of power on display in the book of Acts, and they are side by side. In a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper or communion, and in that sacrament, we remember the king and the kingdom bringer, Jesus. And we take bread, and we remember his body. We remember the body born in a barn, laid in a manger, born in obscurity, the same body whipped by soldiers, nailed to a cross and laid in a tomb. And on the third day, that same body walked out of that tomb in power. See, it seemed like the power was born in Rome, but it turns out the real power was born in Bethlehem. It turns out this upside-down kingdom has a whole different power base and a whole different scoring system. There's a kingdom at work in this world, and sometimes it's not always visible. And sometimes this other kingdom doesn't look so impressive, and you might wonder sometimes if you can trust it. And I want you to know you can. This kingdom is real, and it is available. Jesus said to ordinary people like you and me, you can leave this kingdom of this world. You can get out of this insane desire to acquire and you can enter into this kingdom of grace and know a power of a different kind. Let's pray that it would be so. Merciful God, thank you for making life in your kingdom possible. Forgive us, Father, for our divided loyalties and our kingdom confusion. Forgive us for working entirely in our own power and failing to call upon you. Meet with us now in the sacrament of communion. Remind us of the resurrection power that is available to each one of us. Strengthen us to live for Jesus. Release your power and your blessing on your people. For God, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.